Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast where I go in deep with experts in the field of mindset, nutrition, and sports. Here is a snippet from this week's guest, Dr. Kristen Neff. The person inside your head that you're with 24-7 is yourself. So you have to be your own supportive friend. You know, I tell people you have a choice. You can be an inner ally or an inner enemy. It's that simple. The voice in your head can either be kind, supportive, encouraging, nurturing 24-7, or it can be cutting you down and telling you you're a loser, you're no good, you aren't good enough. Dr. Kristen Neff is a pioneer in self-compassion. She did her graduate work at the University of California at Berkeley, receiving a PhD in psychology and has contributed numerous journal articles and written a book on self-compassion. She also came out with a self-compassion scale, which is now used in over 1,400 studies to assess self-compassion and its effects on mental health. Dr. Neff has successfully differentiated between self-compassion and self-esteem, which is covered in this podcast. And she talks about what the constructs of self-compassion look like, which involve showing kindness to oneself when experiencing suffering, framing one's experience of imperfection in light of the shared human experience to prevent isolation, and mindful awareness of negative thoughts and emotions. We talk about mindfulness a lot in this podcast, but we also discuss how it's not just mindfulness that teaches you how to have better self-compassion. Definitely check out her book titled Self-Compassion, which was published in 2011, and go to her website, selfcompassion.org, where she has multiple options to take courses, including an online training course coming out in October. I personally love this topic because mindfulness and self-compassion are things that I've been working on for many, many years. And I used to be a perfectionist and was incredibly harsh on myself. And it wasn't until the bottom fell out from underneath me with everything I was doing that I learned that I needed to reframe how I talk to myself. And that's covered in another episode of the show, which I will also link up in the show notes. So if you're curious about what self-compassion is, or maybe you just wish that you weren't as critical of yourself, I think that you'll find a lot of value in this show. As athletes, we are especially hard on ourselves, and it can cause a lot of anxiety around things like race results. So here is Dr. Neff. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Dr. Kristen Neff. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And you're in Austin right now. I'm in Austin. Yes. The weather's beautiful here right now. I must say. Yeah, I love Austin. I've been there several times for some bike trips and there's a really cool community there. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's a great town. Um, it, it still has a community feel, even though it's growing rapidly. <laughs> That's good. That's hard to maintain that. So you are teaching at the university there and you've done quite a bit of, you're a pioneer in uh, self-compassion research. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Well, yeah, it actually started with me as a personal practice. Um, I was, I learned how to meditate when I was finishing up my PhD in Berkeley. Um, And the woman who was leading the meditation course talked a lot about the importance of self-compassion and, um, It was at a time in my life when I really needed self-compassion. I had just gotten out of a divorce and my life was basically a mess. (laughs) And so I tried being kind and supportive with myself. And I was just absolutely amazed at the difference it made in my life and my ability to heal. 
So, um, you know, when I got the job at UT Austin, I had, I had been studying self-concept development and realized that although people had studied things like self-esteem, no one had actually studied self-compassion, you know, how that impacts well-being. So I created a scale to measure it and started researching it. And it's just kind of, it's, it's become a, a monster is not quite the right word, but it's gotten so much momentum. There's like 1400 studies now on self-compassion. It's absolutely insane. Wow. So it's very cool to see all the research on it. And I think one of the reasons people are so excited by the self-compassion research is that you can actually learn how to be more self-compassionate. It's not like you have it or you don't. This is actually a skill you can learn. So, um, yeah, I think that's why that's why people are so excited. Yeah. Yeah. So what does your scale consist of? Uh, well, my scale, this is kind of a very straightforward a measurement of the different elements of self-compassion. And so, you know, when I had to think, when I first started, decided I wanted to research it, I had to think, well, what is this thing called self-compassion? I mean, being a friend to yourself, that's nice, but it's kind of vague for, for a self-report scale, right? And so I actually operationalize it as having these three main components, and all of them are necessary to make sure that it's self-compassion and not something else that looks similar like self-pity, right? We know self-pity isn't good. Self-compassion is good. What's the difference? Okay. So, um, well, the first thing about self-compassion is that it's actually rooted in mindfulness, right? It's been a lot of work in mindfulness, and mindfulness is the ability to be aware of what's happening as it's happening in a kind of balanced way, you know, as opposed to just being lost in some drama about it. And so really, we have to be mindful when we're struggling or suffering or feeling bad about ourselves in order to have self-compassion. If we are just in problem-solving mode or we're just, you know, avoiding things, we can actually open our hearts to ourselves with this kind response. So mindfulness is part of it, as opposed to, again, being lost in a, a drama about what's happening. Um, and then, you know, kindness, that's in some ways the most obvious part. It means treating yourself with kindness, care and concern, basically the same type of care and concern you'd show to a friend when they were struggling, um, as opposed to being harshly judgmental. Now, actually, what we find in the research is that most people are much kinder and less judgmental of their friends than they are to themselves, right? Um, and but the last element, I think, which is really important to, to make sure that self-compassion isn't like self-pity masquerading as self-compassion, is something I call common humanity. Basically, what that means is, you know, you frame your own imperfection and the imperfection of your life in light of the shared human experience. In other words, self-pity is, woe is me, poor me, you know, like, uh, you know, it's so hard for me. It's very self-focused. Whereas compassion, and the reason it's compassion is compassion means to suffer with. There's like a connected nature inherent to compassion. So that means it's like when you make a mistake, it's like, well, you know, whoever said I wasn't supposed to make a mistake, part of being human is making a mistake. Or when things are difficult in your life, instead of seeing it's just me, realize, well, wait a second, it's, life is difficult for everyone. And what that does, the reason it's so important is, is normally, like when we make a mistake or something really difficult happens in our life, we have this kind of irrational reaction, like something has gone wrong here. This isn't supposed to be happening. As if, you know, again, it's not logical, but emotionally, we react as if baseline is supposed to be perfection. And if I'm not perfect or my life isn't perfect, something has gone wrong. 
And what happens when we let ourselves fall into that trap is we feel isolated. Every time we fail, every time we struggle, we feel isolated from the rest of humanity. And actually that feeling of being cut off and isolated is really, really psychologically damaging. So with self-compassion, the kind of the beauty of it is just by remembering, well, wait a second, this is normal. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone struggles. It's not just me. And you can kind of like open up your perspective to include others then it means you, feel, you don't feel so all alone. So, you know, again, self-compassion isn't self-focused. The irony is, is normally we cut ourselves out of the circle of compassion. We just give it outward. All we're doing is including ourselves in the circle of compassion, but not in a way that looks like self-pity. Yeah, it's pretty interesting in our society. We've been taught to not take care of ourselves and not look at ourselves in, in that way because now suddenly we're an egomaniac or narcissistic. Yes, and that's, right. that's yeah. unfortunate that that's kind of been what's grown out of how our society views the self. But yes, I, I'd yes. like to get into the self-compassion over self-esteem and social comparison yeah. because people, yeah. nobody wants to be called an egomaniac. Nobody wants yeah, to, sure. to be, you know, accused of tooting their own horn or thinking they're the greatest. But it is important to love yourself first and foremost yes, before you can love anybody right. else. So yeah, let's let's chat about that. Yeah. So um, well, so self-esteem and, and partly it depends how you're defining these terms. But if you think of self-esteem as a positive judgment of self-worth, I'm a good, worthy, valuable person in this world. Usually, it's based in our society. Usually, it's based on um, some sort of successful performance. Actually, the three domains most people invest their self-esteem in is for women, the most important one is actually looks. So it's how we look, um, our uh, success at performance. So if you're an athlete, your athletic success, or if you're a student, you know, your academic success, um, and also how, how popular we are, how much other people like us. This is the source of our self-esteem. And, you know, we know it's it's better to like yourself than to hate yourself, certainly. But the problem is when your self-esteem is contingent on success in these areas, you know, it's fine when everything's going good. But what happens when you don't look so good? You have a bad hair day. <laughs> you get rejected by your partner or, you know, people stop start ignoring you or you fail. You know, that's a big one. What happens if you fail that race or you fail that test? then your self-esteem deserts you, right? So actually self-esteem based on success in that way is really unstable. It's not like exactly when you need it most and that's when you fail, it deserts you. So self-compassion, it's also a sense of self-worth, but it's not contingent on success. It's not contingent on being good even at something. It's only contingent on being a human being, a flawed human being at that, right? I am a human being and therefore I'm worthy of respect, right? I'm worthy of kindness because, just because I'm a human being. So that means when you fail and fall flat on your face, that's precisely when self-compassion steps in and says, you know, hey, I care about you anyway. It's okay. It's only human. So you might say the foundation uh, for, self, for self-compassion is much more stable than it is for self-esteem. Also, with self-esteem, we have to feel special and above average. Right. I mean, think that no one wants to be called average. Right. It's not okay. It's, average. it's an insult. But with compassion, actually, we do want to be average. In other words, it's average to be imperfect. Everyone's imperfect. 
So you aren't better than anyone else. You aren't worse than anyone else. You are just a, a flawed, struggling human being like everyone else, you know, good moments and bad moments, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I think it, it offers so much more um, resilience and protection than self-esteem does. And, and the research literature really seems to bear this out. It's a much more stable way to think about why you're worthy of kindness and self-esteem. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's people that appear to have very high self-esteem, but I found that some of those people are the most insecure people out there because they're doing things that are self-affirming and they're not putting themselves in situations where they could make a mistake or where they could fail. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's why, um, so for instance, one of the biggest gifts of self-compassion is it's linked to less fear of failure. As opposed to self-esteem, like a lot of people, they have high self-esteem, but they don't take risks because it's too scary. What if they fail? Their self-esteem will be dashed. Or if they do fail at something, they give up because, you know what, I don't, I'm not good at that. I'm just going to give up because they're trying to preserve their self-esteem. With self-compassion, it's safe to fail. You know, it's safe to say, okay, I failed. What can I learn from this? It's part of the experience of being a human being as opposed to an indictment of self-worth. Um, so, for instance, a lot of people are afraid that being self-compassionate will undermine their motivation. It's just the opposite, because one of the biggest key factors in successful motivation is being willing to take learning risks and bouncing back when you fail. That's what keeps us going, right? Mm -hmm. And so self-compassion is actually linked to more motivation than self-esteem is. Right. And certainly the people who, who, who like, you know, the people who fail and just slam themselves with self-criticism thinking it's going to motivate themselves. I mean, you're an athlete, right? Maybe you had a, maybe you had the misfortune once in your life of having a coach. He tried to motivate you by shaming you. You're, a loser. <laughs> you're lame. You know, you're no good at this. You know, yeah. Like how motivating is that? That's not really, it, is, it kind of is. You may work harder to try to avoid that coach yelling at you. In the long term, it's not going to hold up, right? The most motivating coach is the one who says, hey, okay, you messed up. That's all right. It's okay. I believe in you anyway. How can I help you? How can I support you? It's like encouraging, encouragement, constructive criticism that's, that's aimed at you for your, your best interest. That's the type of motivation that's most useful, most successful. And that's what self-compassion gives you. Yeah, I think that that really brings up the point of surrounding yourself with people that are going to talk to you in the right way to create an environment where it's okay to fail. Like if you were raised in a situation with maybe parental figures or teachers who, if, yes. if, you're, if you're bad or if you fail, then you feel like you are bad. And a lot of people think that they are their own result. Like I, I instead of that was bad, they say I am bad or right. I yeah. was last place. I am last place in life. And yeah. being able to draw a line and create space between those two things, I think is really important and, and really hard to do. Yeah. And so not only, I mean, it is important to surround yourself with supportive people, but you can have all the nicest, warmest, most supportive, compassionate people in the world around you. The person inside your head that you're, you're with 24 seven is yourself. So you have to be your own supportive friend. You know, I tell people you have a choice. You can be an inner ally or an inner enemy. It's that simple. The voice in your head can either be kind, supportive, encouraging, nurturing 24-7, or it can be cutting you down, saying, you know, telling you you're a loser, you're no good, you aren't good enough 24-7. And the difference is really the difference between being able to 
you know, be resilient in adversity, to achieve your goals, to be happy, to be authentic versus not, you know, that that's why I'm kind of, I'm so passionate about self-compassion because it makes such a huge difference in people's lives. And so, yes, absolutely. If you can surround yourself with good supportive people, but even if you weren't fortunate enough to have parents who supported you and gave you what you needed, in some ways what self-compassion is, it's, it's like reparenting yourself. You know, it's giving yourself those messages that maybe you didn't get from other people, but you can give them to yourself. You just have to be kind of intentional about it. And that's why it's, it's actually practice as opposed to something you just have or you don't have. Yeah. So what's a good way for people to get started with this practice? Because we're saying, oh, be nice to yourself. Don't be so critical. But it's a hard habit to break whenever you make a mistake and now you're you're pounding away on yourself. So how do, yeah. you, how do you create space and how do you change your self-talk? Right. So, um, I mean, that's the, that's the thing I've been so amazed by is that it's definitely possible. Right. Um, so, so one place people could start was just go to my website, selfcompassion.org. Um, I've got a lot of practices on there, very simple practices, um, that you, you can easily do to try to encourage, you know, to change the way you relate to yourself. One really simple thing, and it seems, it seems funny at first, but touch self-supportive touch. Now, you know, people think, oh my God, that's so touchy-feely, putting your hands on your heart, yucky, you know? <laughs> so what happens? We are mammals, right? We are mammals. We are born as mammals to respond to touch. You know, as opposed to our reptile ancestors who had that like fight or flight response. But, you know, like a, a mommy lizard doesn't care for her baby lizard. She just lays eggs and abandons them, right? And so, so, so what happens with mammals, what's different with mammals is, because mammals are born very immature and they have this long developmental period, and especially humans, huge period for their brains to develop, we're born with this, this thing called the mammalian attachment system. Basically, we respond as infants and as caregivers to, um, to warm touch and soothing vocalizations. And it's not just humans. Think of a cat, like a mommy cat with the kittens purring and you know all that, all that stuff they do. We're like that, you know, um, amplified. So when you Give yourself a touch, like, you know, it can be on your heart, it can be, you can cradle your cheek, you can hold your hand, you can do whatever. But what happens is you cut through all the mental chatter and your body says, ah, warm, supportive touch. Okay, I can feel safe now, right? And that's a very, very easy way to access this kind of, this part of ourselves, which is compassionate. Um, so that, that's one thing, and anyone can do that. Um, there's also, you can just ask yourself the very simple question. What would I say to a friend who is in the exact same situation I am? Most people have, are pretty well experienced at knowing how to be compassionate and supportive to others. I mean, one of the, the main skills we learn is how to be a good friend. I mean, not everyone is, but most people are. <laughs> you know, if you really look at it, most people know how, like, what to say, how to be supportive. So if you ask yourself, well, what would I say to a friend who had this exact same situation? And you can even write it out and then just try it on with yourself, you know? And it, it, it does feel weird at first. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it takes, it takes time, you know, especially if you grew up in a home where your parents were even, you know, emotionally or even physically abusive, it happens. You know, it's, it's slower. But the amazing thing is if you just set your intention to treat yourself with more kindness and support, it actually can be achieved. It just, it just takes, you know, a, a little bit of determination. I'm going to do something different. But, you know, it's not rocket science. 
You don't have to like get a degree or learn how to do algebra. You know, you just have to do the simple thing of remembering not to cut yourself down and to support yourself as opposed to criticize yourself. And, you know, it, it doesn't happen. It, it, it changes over time. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that goes back to the mindfulness and meditation of, first of all, recognizing that your thoughts are on the train to the self-criticism yes. place. And yes. it sometimes yeah. it takes time for people to yes. even realize that they're doing it and then to be able to pause and stop and reframe. And that's a really hard thing to, to do. But I, I do think that the meditation practice is a good way to do that. Yeah, meditation is very, very helpful to mindfulness because what happens is unconsciously, we in those moments when we're criticizing ourselves, we actually think we're helping ourselves. You know, our self-critic thinks, I'm, I'm keeping you safe from danger. I'm controlling the situation. You know, I'm actually doing something good here. It's like that really strict, abusive parent who thinks they're like helping their child when really they're just undermining their child. So you got to catch it. Not only do you have to notice you're criticizing yourself, you have to be willing to notice, wow, this really hurts. And actually ask yourself, is this really helping me or not? You know, be honest. And usually the answer is, well, there may be some ways it's helping, but more often than not, it's causing more problems than it's helping, right? So the mindfulness is good, but you don't have to learn how to meditate to get that bit of mindfulness because we aren't talking about like sustained states of mindfulness when you're in the present moment for like 20 minutes. We're just talking about catching yourself, you know, and also catching yourself when you're suffering. So, so our, in our research, for instance, um, we've got different ways of accessing self-compassion. Some are things like soothing touch. Some are just, um, we have, I have a practice on my website called the self-compassion break. We just kind of say three phrases designed to evoke, you know, kindness, mindfulness, and common humanity. Um, we also have meditations. I also have a lot of free guided meditations on my website. But it didn't ma doesn't matter what you do. They're both equally effective at engendering self-compassion. So for people who don't like to meditate or don't have time to meditate, you don't have to. I mean, it's a great resource. Believe me, I'm a meditator. I love meditation. But it's not for everyone. And it's not necessary with self-compassion, which is the cool thing. So there's a lot of doorways in, you might say. Writing is also a very good one for self-compassion. Writing yourself a letter as from the perspective of like a compassionate friend or, or what you might write to a compassionate friend, research has shown that that's incredibly powerful for changing the way you relate to yourself. So yeah. there's lots, lots of practices for people. Yeah, and I think for people out there who are doing a lot of different sports, like looking yeah. at all of your challenges as an opportunity and I did a TED talk actually about this, the hardest race in the world. And I had all these setbacks, but I reframed it into an opportunity. And it's like everyone listening can practice that in their daily life, whether it's in their relationships or if they're riding their bike or whatever they're doing. That's right. Yeah, there's actually a whole field of people interested in uh, self-compassion and sport precisely for that. Because with sport, it's this fear of failure and performance anxiety. It's so potentially debilitating. And this is something they found that really helps athletes not get, you know, derailed by fear of failure or performance anxiety when they just approach it, like you say, with this is a learning opportunity. But, you know, and although the, the mindset stuff is great and I totally believe in it and self-compassion leads to better mindsets, the warmth is key. You can't underestimate the power of warmth, right? Emotional warmth, kindness, friendliness, you know, love, if you, you don't have to use that term, but you could, because as mammals and as human beings, this is the 
the, the mindset, you might say the emotion that really makes us feel safe and makes us able to achieve our best. And we actually can give ourselves warmth. So some, something, something as simple as checking in with your internal tone of voice, maybe even practice out loud. Is it warm or not? Yeah, you know, that's really good. It's like, okay, this is a learning opportunity here. <laughs> hey, you'll learn from this. It'll be okay no matter what you do. Huge difference in terms of the impact it has on you. That's such a good so, point. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk about empathy versus compassion because I yeah. know they're not the same thing, but that's right. I don't really know how to describe the difference between the two. And I was hoping you could for me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a part of the problem is, you know, people use the term empathy a million different ways. So, you know, in some ways it's arbitrary, but the, the kind of convention now in psychology is people use empathy to refer to feeling what other people are feeling. So like an empathetic therapist is very able to understand what their client is feeling. They pick up on subtle tones, subtle facial expressions. In fact, we know a lot of our brain as human beings, are, are um, the real estate of our brain is devoted to empathy. We're, we're really good at reading the emotions of others because that helped us cooperate you know, way back in the day. So empathy is, is feeling the emotions of others, but it doesn't necessarily mean you care. For instance, they know that we're really good con men has really good empathy skills because they're able to, okay, I see they're feeling a bit nervous now. Now's the time to strike or something like that, right? So feeling the emotions of others doesn't necessarily mean caring about the others. So compassion as opposed to empathy is um, this desire for the well-being of the person who's suffering, right? And also, I should say empathy is not necessarily with suffering. You can empathize with happiness or sadness or boredom. Compassion is just when there's suffering present, kind of by definition. And what it means is like, oh, I, I care about this suffering. Is there anything I can do to help? And so what, 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 the reason it's so powerful, they've actually looked at this in the brain with caregivers, right? You know, they're saying they shouldn't call it compassion fatigue, it's empathy fatigue. The problem is if you're caring for people who are suffering and you're feeling their suffering and the pain centers of your brain are being activated when you're with people in pain, that's going to burn you out. But with compassion, what you're doing is you're focusing, you might say, on the care or the kindness holding the pain. It's that feeling of, oh, I'm so sorry you're suffering. And so the pain is still there. It's not like you're shutting it out, but... You're more emphasizing, the, again, the warmth, the warmth that's directed toward the person who is suffering. So, and, and that feeling of warmth is actually a positive emotion. It's really, it's kind of crazy. And you start to learn this when you practice it with yourself. You can have moments of terrible pain. You know, I've, I've had my moments, believe me. But then when you hold it in compassion, it's like your awareness rests in the love holding the pain. And it's actually a positive state of being. You know, and that's, again, one of the reasons why it's such a powerful tool is because it's like, it's like wrapping, wrapping the negative in the positive. Like just, I think it was like a crying little baby and you're holding it in your arms, you know? And so, yeah, the baby's still crying, but you also feel that love and tenderness toward that little baby and the love and tenderness is actually what's so powerful. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. It's pretty cool stuff, isn't it? That's why yeah. I'm so good. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love this stuff. And I actually didn't even know that it was a field of research until I found you. And I thought this is amazing. And I've been doing my yeah. own reading and, um, right. the most interesting thing I, I've been reading a book that, uh, you're with your business partner. Um, Oh my, my, yeah, my teaching partner, teaching partner. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good friend. Yeah. yeah. And I thought something really interesting in there was like, it, I, I do headspace meditation and you're supposed to just label something as a thought or a feeling, but the mm-hmm. book goes even further to actually label the feeling as something and then to label the yeah. feeling even more. So instead of saying anger, saying boiling and like changing the way that you even label the feeling. So I thought that was an interesting way to dismiss an emotion basically, or, or create space with that emotion. Yeah, yeah. You got to be careful. Words like dismiss the mind. yeah. mindfulness radar. Say, right, no, exactly. No. That's why I had to yeah. change it. <laughs> yeah, we actually teach, a, 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 um, Chris and I, we teach a, um, a practice in our mindful self-compassion course. We, we've been working really long and hard for the past seven years on developing an intervention to teach self-compassion. And I think we've got something, I must say, that's really works. And it you know, empirically, it, we show it works. Um, so, so first you use things like labeling to say, what's the emotion? And that's the mindfulness. Very important because instead of being lost in the emotion, like anger, I'm so angry. It's like, oh, I'm angry. It gives you that little bit of space needed to respond rather than react. But you don't just stop there, right? Then you can say, okay, can I feel this in my body? You know, and then so you kind of embody it. But then like, is there, how am I, is this uncomfortable? Is there suffering present? And often with these, especially with negative emotions, there's some pain there. So then you can actually soothe and comfort yourself because you're angry. God, it's so hard to feel angry. And often, especially under things like anger, is often things like hurt or sadness or fear, a little easier to swaddle and compassion, you might say. And then when you bring that tenderness to it, then it really loses its power. You know, that then you aren't, because you, again, because you first of all, you feel safe. Negative emotions make us feel unsafe. That's kind of their function. We feel safe. Okay, I got my own back. I can handle this. I'm here for myself. Negative emotions here. Wow, this is really hard. But I can be with it. And that's when the real healing starts to happen is, again, when you give your give yourself warmth. Um, again, kind of the reparenting. You know, think, again, think about a crying child. One of the things a parent does for a crying child is gives them a hug and says, I love you and I'm here for you. Believe it or not, we can kind of give ourselves the same thing in any moment of self-compassion. Um, and we're, we're just doing our first brain studies now of self-compassion training, but I'm pretty sure we're going to see pretty strong correlates of this in the brain. So, That's so cool. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. And so can you do this? So instead of saying, I am angry, you can say, this is anger or I am jealous. This is jealousy. Does that work the same way? I mean, you can. I mean, it's certainly good not to identify with thoughts. Like it's just, it's a feeling of anger that's arising, right? Um, you have to be a little careful going too far this route because I've, I've seen a lot of people who are just like, just doing the mindfulness. It's a kind of way of trying to avoid the pain of what they're feeling. Oh, this is just, this is just sadness. This is just grief. This, this is anger. But what you really need to do is, man, it sucks to feel anger and grief and sadness. Ah, oh, it's that ah, oh, believe it or not. I mean, it's it's kind of counterintuitive, but it's the ability to open your heart to yourself because it's difficult that has the real transformative power. First of all, it allows the emotion to heal, but it also gives you again the sense of safety um, and warmth needed to take affection to take effective action. So yes, you know, all those techniques, not, not running away with your thoughts, not believing them, not taking it personally, very, very useful. 
you just don't want to stop there. You want to make sure you add in the element of warmth. Otherwise, it's kind of incomplete. So how do you, like we talked about this earlier, but how do you draw the line between, uh, like it's uh, poor me or whatever, like how do you draw the line between self-pity and playing the victim? Like, cause that there's an area in there that's, that's the right area to be in, but how do you know when you've crossed the line and how do you know like where that line is? Yeah. So you have to, first of all, be honest with yourself, right? So, you know, am I saying poor me, like victim is me or am I saying this is a human experience? So when we're saying, ah, we're saying, ah, to the fact human experience is challenging for everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'll just give an example of um, from my own life. Right. Um, And this is after I've been practicing self-compassion for, gosh, maybe 10 years. Um, And my son, Rowan, I I talk about this a lot, is autistic. And I remember once being at the playground with him and, you know, there was a bunch of other mothers there and everyone was, you know, the kids were playing in the playground and all the kids seemed like they were just happily interacting. And, you know, and here's Rowan on the slide, just stimming away, banging the slide, not interacting with me or the other kids. And I started like, oh, this is really hard. And like, but I started going down the path of self-pity. Like, why me? Why can't I have a normal, happy relationship with my child like all these other mothers? Then I caught myself because of my practice. And I said, wait a second, Kristen. First of all, you're assuming that all these other mothers, not only now, but for the entire relationship with their child will have a perfectly unproblematic, happy relationship. Are you kidding? You know, I mean, just by statistics, some of these kids will, you know, maybe it's not autism, but it could be another physical challenge they have or mental health challenge or issue with drugs or, you know, who knows what it is. But actually, all parents experience struggle with their children. That's almost what defines what being a parent is. Some people have it harder and less hard, but still, this is what makes us a parent. We have, we have conflict and struggle and challenge with our children, and we love them anyway, and we do our best. And so the second I did that reframe, which for me felt like I was in self-pity, then I went to self-compassion, like, wow, this is, this is what it means to be a parent. Everything changed. And suddenly I felt, I felt less isolated. I felt more connected to those other mothers. I felt more, I felt more capable of handling my situation, right? So again, I mean, it's not like you won't ever accidentally slip into self-pity, but you're going to do that anyway, right? So you, you just get used to that. It feels different in your body when your sense of caring is uh, self-focused and isolated or if it's connected. And it's really that connection which keeps it, first of all, it keeps it grounded in perspective, right? Because mm-hmm. another thing I thought on that on that playground is, wow, it actually could be a lot worse. I mean, autism is challenging, but there's, you know, people with kids have cancer, you know? So it's like, it, it kind of keeps in perspective, not to belittle your situation, but also not just blow it out of proportion, which is what self-pity does, you know, and also not feeling so isolated and self-focused in it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, that's why you need all three components. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can take off in your mind. Am I remembering common humanity here? Oh, I'm not. Oh, okay. Well then how would I bring that in? Yeah, no. that is a really important component for sure. And um, yeah. I wanted to bring this up because I, I read that you went to Mongolia with your family and there's it's, a documentary about it. Is it called? it. It's called The Horse Boy. Yeah, yeah, that was a, that was a crazy adventure. And I, I, um, I wouldn't have been able to do it without my self-compassion practice. I tell you, it's, it's um, because it was, I mean, the autism was really, really hard. And then I, we're actually... Um, 
we're split now and we're still very good friends, but my ex um, is kind of a madman. And he got this crazy idea of taking our, our family to Mongolia to ride from shaman to shaman on horseback because um, Mongolia is actually one of the national religions in Mongolia, shamanism, and it's where the horse comes from. And so we did this crazy adventure, but man, I mean, miracles happen. It's, you don't have to believe me. You can see for the film yourself, but um, it was, he was five, my son was five years old and he wasn't toilet trained yet. And I quite jokingly said at the beginning, you know, if he can just come back toilet trained, that'll be enough. That's like a bit, big enough result. And he did, he did wow. at the end trip he used the toilet and he never went back so um yeah it's kind of I think to me it's the power of um when you really open it's really opening your heart that's what we're talking about this practice is opening your heart not only to other people which is wonderful but also to yourself um that it shifts everything and it allows this alchemy to occur and, and you know some people think love's miraculous I've, I've certainly experienced that you know with my son he's doing so great now by the way he's just he's the coolest 15 year old he's 15 now that's wow. long time. yeah so yeah. everyone loves yeah I, I, I can't wait to watch that documentary actually because I, I actually have raced my bike across Mongolia Oh, have you? Oh, yeah, Mongolia is such a cool country. Yeah, and I saw all the horse. I didn't see any shamans, but I saw so many yeah. wild horses, and it was yeah. cool to kind of have that um, connection. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, was, I know. I loved Mongolia, yeah. But it was still, it's like, I'm in outer Mongolia. That's crazy, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's real there. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I want to ask a question about social media. So, a lot of a lot of people demonize social media saying, oh, well, people are only showing the best pictures and the best filters and they're making their life look so amazing. And that's not what everybody's life is like. And that makes people feel mm -hmm. isolated or it makes them feel um, even worse about their imperfections. So what can people do um, if, if they're having those feelings with social media? Like with my social media, I try to show people everything, the good and the bad and like all I'll put pictures where I don't look perfect in them, but how can people um, use social media as a tool to help them not feel so isolated in, in this environment? Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question and I'll be honest. I mean, I'm a little bit older and I just, I don't use, you know, I've been on Facebook a couple times in my life. I, my book has a page, but I don't have a page. So I'm not really that, um, that up on social media, it seems to me though, I mean, I've, I've like talked at wisdom 2.0 where like Facebook, that, that's a big question for them. Like, how do we use this for good as opposed to isolation? This question, it seems to me that the medium itself is neutral. It has a tremendous power to connect, you know, to build this common humanity, but it also has tremendous power to isolate. And so it just seems, you know, it seems as if people are just going to have to be really conscious about how they use it. And it's great people like you are showing the full picture. I mean, I suppose as a consumer of social media, you just have to be really mindful and aware that the images you're seeing are filtered um, and just, uh, yeah, just try to be aware of it. But it makes it harder, right? It makes it harder when you're you have to say, oh, wait a second, I'm not getting the full story here. you got to do that extra step of work. But at this point, I don't know if there's a way around it, but I, I suspect that it's something, I suspect social media will start to change with the culture. And if, in fact, compassion, and I think actually it is starting at some level, there's a, there's a really powerful compassion movement in our culture. It's, it's new, 
But it's there. There's a movement towards mindfulness and compassion. I don't see why social media can't be harnessed in the service of that. I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like, but mm -hmm. you know, so we'll have to see. So maybe you can be one of the pioneers in that area. Yeah, that'd be that'd be great. Yeah. So like people are listening to this and they're thinking, yeah, okay, okay, but that's not for me. And they mm -hmm. have resistance coming up. So yes. what, what can people do to recognize that resistance and maybe overcome that to be more open? Yeah. So one of the nice things about self-compassion is that um, there, there are five main blocks to self-compassion, this resistance, and research actually shows all of them are false. So one is, well, one is that it's self-pity. And we've already talked about that, like self-compassion people are less self-focused. They ruminate less, they're less likely to exaggerate things and feel for me. Um, people think it's going to undermine their motivation. Oh, it's not for me. I need my self-criticism to succeed. Lots of research shows that self-compassion, you know, being a good supportive coach, as opposed to that mean, vicious coach is going to actually help you motivate, motivate you and achieve your goals. So that one's false. People think that it's self-indulgent, that self-compassion means being nice to yourself, you know, just like, oh, I think I'll skip practice today and I'll just eat that box of Oreos, you know. Self-indulgence is really different than self-compassion. Like a compassionate mother doesn't let their kid eat a box of Oreos. A compassionate mother who cares about her kid says, you know, eat your vegetables, right? Mm -hmm. So we know that with the research, the same thing. If you care about yourself, if you're a good friend to yourself, you're going to, people go to the doctor more often, they eat healthier, they exercise more. So you aren't going to be self-indulgent. You're more likely to take care of yourself. Um, another one is people are afraid it means that you'll blow off responsibility. Oh, it's only human. You know, oh, uh, yeah, I called you that name, but you know, so I was angry. It's only human. I get just the opposite. What happens is if we're trying to protect our self-esteem, we're going to not take uh, responsibility for our behavior. We're going to try to blame it on other people because it's too painful to own up to what we did. Self-compassion, it's safe to admit you made a mistake. And they show like, for instance, even trying, like helping people to be more self-compassionate in the moment helps them take responsibility for their actions and apologize, right? So it doesn't mean um, it, it's going to uh, slow things off. And actually, another big one is weakness. People think that self-compassion means being weak. They think, you know, it's just all this softness and that softness is weak. Actually, self-compassion is an incredible strength. Just to give you one example of one of the research studies, we looked at um, veterans who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan. And we, you know, we measured their self-compassion level with my scale. And we found that veterans' level of self-compassion was more predictive of whether or not they develop post-traumatic stress disorder a year later than level of combat exposure itself. Wow. So think what that says. It's not even like how much action you saw how did you treat yourself in terms of in dealing with that action? Were you an inner enemy or an inner ally? And as any military person will tell you, it's your allies that give you strength. You know, if you're an enemy cutting yourself down, you're undermining yourself, you're weakening yourself. So, the, and there's lots of research like that showing that being so, a good supportive friend to yourself in times of struggle gives you the strength you needed to, to be resilient. Um, and if you cut yourself down, it's, it's going to actually make you weaker. So I think once people start thinking about it, and then again, you can go to my website, and there's like hundreds and hundreds of studies showing all this, and people start thinking, well, maybe I'll give it a try. And then once you try, but you won't really be convinced, so you try it out for yourself, you know, obviously. So then that's, that's the last step. And, you know, I invite people to go to my website. There's 
there's exercises, there's guided meditations, there's written things you can do and just try for a week and see what happens. You know? Cool. And your course coming out in October, online training course. That's right. Yeah. So Chris Bermer and I, we've just come out with Sounds True, um, an eight-week online course in self-compassion. It's eight one-hour sessions. And that's cool because up until now, we've only taught live in person. This is our first big online course. So no matter where you are in the world, if you're interested, you can do that. And just, again, go to my website, just Google self-compassion. You'll find me and you can get the link to that course. Great. I'll put all that in the show notes. Make sure everybody has access. And thank you so much for your time today. So fun to talk to you. You Same here. And so, and I put it on you to find a way to make social media help compassion. That's your, that's your, I'm I'm working on it. (laughs) All right. Great. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was so cool to be able to talk with Dr. Neff. And I definitely learned a lot in the show. I was really interested in the difference between empathy and compassion and how to define what each one means. And I didn't even know that you could be empathetic without being compassionate. So that was just so cool. Definitely check out Dr. Neff's website, selfcompassion.org. That's self-compassion.org, which will be in the show notes. Look at her book and definitely keep an eye out for some of her courses. I think that the eight-week course sounds really interesting, and no matter who you are, there's always an opportunity to get better and to improve on your state of mind. If you're enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate any reviews on Apple Podcasts, and hey, just share it with your friends on social media. Your word of mouth is just so helpful in getting the word out about the show, and if it helps you, maybe it's going to help your friends as well. I have a free monthly newsletter that I've been sending out, and I've also started sending out notifications about new episodes of the podcast, so you can sign up for my newsletter on the website. I try to include helpful blog posts and the latest news in that newsletter and no spam. I also have a Patreon page for the show, which is a crowdfunding website. All donations will go directly to the production of the show, and I'm trying to make this an ad-free zone. My podcast has become eligible to sell ads, and it annoys me when I hear ads on other podcasts, so I'm trying really hard to avoid that, but I definitely need more support from you guys if you are looking for an ad-free zone as well. The current production of this free show is primarily supported out of my own pocket because I absolutely love it and I really believe in the power of audio, and a small portion is being covered through the donations that you've generously given on Patreon. So thanks so much for that, you guys. I'm in Las Vegas this week at Innerbike. I have to admit that Las Vegas is not my favorite place to be, but I'm making the best of it. And next year's Innerbike is going to be in Reno, Nevada. And I've actually never been there before. And I hear there's some good mountain biking. So I'm pretty excited about the location change. If you have any feedback for me, I would love to hear it. You can send me an email through my website. Maybe the show is too long. Maybe it's too short, which I doubt. Maybe you want to see more episodes. So just let me know because I do this for you guys and knowing what you're looking for is really helpful. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in week after week. And thank you for going back and listening to older episodes. I know people are finding the show and they're going back and it's really encouraging to get to see that metric. Wishing you all the best success in your training and your adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.